Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Chapter 133, Urban's Unhelpful Help. We start this chapter in a place far from the Empire. The place once called Gaul, as we know, is now called France, and it was in France that Pope Urban II made his speech calling for the Knights of Europe to travel to the Holy Land and retake Jerusalem for Christianity. The date of the start of the Crusade was set. It would begin in August 1096. The noblemen of France, Germany and Italy began to make preparations. But there was one man who wasn't prepared to wait. Before the official crusade was ready to go, a strange but charismatic monk named Peter the Hermit set out from France preaching the crusade to the peasants. He moved slowly from France into the German lands, gathering more and more followers as he went. The people who joined him were not warriors or soldiers, but very poor people who, although they may have believed in the crusade, joined Peter because they had nothing better to do. At least they stood a chance of being fed properly. This motley band numbered over 20,000 men, women and children by the time they left Cologne after Easter in 1096. Sometimes whole villages joined in what became known as the People's Crusade. They headed towards Constantinople, causing trouble as they went, until they arrived in Hungary. King Coloman granted them passage through his country on the condition they didn't steal anything or kill anyone. Unfortunately, they completely failed to resist either of these things and by the time they crossed the border into the empire, they had left 4,000 Hungarians dead. Things didn't get any better and they continued to pillage until they reached the imperial capital. Alexius Comnenus realised there was little point in getting too annoyed with the People's Crusade and he granted Peter an audience. He agreed to ferry them all over the Bosphorus. Peter was mightily pleased, but his followers could not believe the magnificence and wealth in Constantinople so they spent their time burgling and stealing. Alexius ordered the boats to begin the crossing and was very pleased to see the rabble on the other side of the water. The People's Crusade was an utter disaster. As soon as they reached the other side of the Bosphorus, they began to kill and torture the local population, who were mostly Greek Christians. They then pillaged and stripped bare the countryside, enough to annoy the Turks. They tried to march on Nicaea, but were ambushed by the Turks and were massacred. Of the 20,000, only 3,000 were left to be rescued by the Imperial fleet and taken back to safety. The People's Crusade was over. Alexius was not stupid enough to think the rest of the Crusaders would be as rubbish as the People's Crusade. He knew that the Crusade proper would be led by knights and lords and would be real armies, not a rabble of men, women and children, and he realised he needed to tread carefully. He had to be nice to the leaders, but he also had to be strong. He couldn't let them think he was too weak, or they may decide they could take his empire away from him. The emperor came up with a plan. He would give all the food, guidance and help that he could to the crusaders, but he would make them swear an oath to him that they would give him any land which had once been part of the empire, and he would rule it as a Christian emperor. It wasn't long before Alexius had to put his plan into action. A few stragglers arrived in Constantinople, under Hugh of Vermandois, in the autumn of 1096, but the real crusading armies began to arrive in December of that year. Normally we think of an army being under the command of a single man who then had other commanders under him. The crusaders were not organised like this. The armies came from different parts of Europe and were led by different men. Although they were all on the same side in theory, each leader had his own personal reason for being there and wanted to do things in his own personal way. First to arrive were the French, who were led by Godfrey of Bouillon and his brother Baldwin of Boulogne. Baldwin was intent not just on fighting for the cross, but on gaining for himself a little kingdom somewhere in the east where he could rule. Two days before Christmas, they arrived at the walls of Constantinople. 
both refused to swear the oath to Alexius. Here, the emperor showed how good he was at balancing force with diplomacy, and he ordered his men to fire arrows over the heads of the crusading army. The French realised they needed the emperor's help, and did not need him as an enemy. Baldwin and Godfrey swore the oath. Alexius, delighted to see the back of them, shipped all the French soldiers over the Bosphorus, and waited for the next lot. The next to arrive were Alexius's worst nightmare. They were Italian Normans led by the new prince of Otranto. The prince surprisingly swore the oath immediately and asked to be made Grand Domestic of the East, the commander of the imperial armies in Asia. Alexius hesitated and told him it wasn't the right time to do this. The prince of Otranto accepted this, but he had made his point. The prince knew how the empire worked and he spoke fluent Greek. He knew the emperor would have to deal with this later and the prince would use this to bargain with Alexius. How did he know so much about the empire? How was it he spoke fluent Greek? The prince of Otranto was none other than Bohemund, son of Robert Giscard. Once he'd got the Normans safely into Asia Minor, Alexius had to deal with the largest crusader army, led by Count Raymond IV of Toulouse. Raymond was from southern France and his army were not the most disciplined force. They pillaged the imperial territory and were eventually attacked by imperial troops. When Raymond arrived in Constantinople, he was in a very bad mood. He completely refused to swear the oath. He cleverly suggested he would only do it if Alexius personally led the crusade. Alexius knew he couldn't spare the men and refused, but he was such a good diplomat that he managed to get Raymond to swear a similar oath that he would respect the emperor and his lands. The fourth and last crusading army was led by Robert of Normandy, eldest son of William the Conqueror. Robert was highly annoyed that his little brother, William Rufus, had been given the crown of England when the Conqueror died, and was keen on a good crusade to make him feel better. With him was Stephen of Blois, father of the future King Stephen of England. They swore the oath to the Empire. Alexius Comnenus slumped in his throne with a sigh of relief when he had ferried the last of the Crusaders over into Anatolia. He had succeeded in managing the travel of more than 100,000 men over his land and then over the Bosphorus without there being any major troubles. Now it was time to sit back and see what happened. Would he get his land back? Would the Crusaders stick to their word? Would he end up with a stronger, larger empire or a weaker one with even more enemies? Just to keep an eye on things, he sent a small force under a general called Tatikos to help the Crusaders. Now, our story is the story of the empire, not the story of the Crusades, so we won't go into every battle and every siege, but we will see what the end result was for Alexius Comnenus and his people. Very surprisingly, the First Crusade was an outstanding success for the Crusaders, but it was a mixed blessing for the Empire. The first object of the Crusade was the capture of Nicaea. The ancient city had become the capital of the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum, and taking it would be vital to defeating the Turks and moving on towards Jerusalem. Raymond of Toulouse reached the city and began to pitch camp. As the Crusaders were preparing, though, the Seljuk army, commanded by the Sultan Kilij Arslan himself, attacked. Raymond was a great military leader, and he commanded his men beautifully. They held off the t attack until Godfrey of Wion arrived and relieved his forces. Together, the two crusading armies won a glorious victory. On the 19th of June, 1096, the Turkish garrison of Nicaea surrendered, and the crusaders took the city. A week later, the crusaders left and headed south towards Antioch. Nicaea and the surrounding territory were handed back to the empire. Alexius Comnenus smiled broadly. This was going well. The crusading army split as it marched south, and the half led by Bohemond, Robert of Normandy and Stephen of Blois came under attack from Kilij Arslan's regrouped forces near the town of Dorylaeum. 
The battle was fierce. The Western Europeans had never fought an army which had so many horses and so many archers and had to completely rethink how they fought. The Turks, though, had not come across knights in heavy armour before and, unless it was a perfect shot, the arrows just bounced off. The knights fought furiously, but it looked like they would be defeated until Raymond and Godfrey turned up and the Turks, seeing vastly more armoured knights, turned and fled. A little more territory was returned to the Empire. Alexius Comnenus smiled very broadly. This was going very well. After the defeat of the Turks at the Battle of Dorylaeum, the crusading army split again. The Armenians in Edessa sent a note to the crusaders asking for help, and Baldwin led his army towards the city. Once he arrived and kicked out the Turks, the Armenian ruler made Baldwin his heir. Baldwin of Boulogne became the Count of Edessa. He stayed put and ruled his new kingdom, taking no further part in the crusade. The territory was not returned to the empire, but Alexius had a new Christian kingdom between his empire and the Turks. Alexius Comnenus smiled nervously. This was still going quite well. The main crusading army arrived near Antioch in October 1097. Antioch lay about halfway between Constantinople and Jerusalem and would need to be taken if the crusaders would get to get to the holy city. The crusader army put Antioch to siege on the 20th of October 1097. During the almost eight months of the siege, they were forced to defeat two large relief armies. Antioch was so large the crusaders did not have enough troops to fully surround it, so some supplies still got in. In May 1098, Kaboga of Mosul approached Antioch to relieve the siege. Bohemond bribed an Armenian guard named Firuz to surrender his tower, and in June the crusaders entered the city and killed most of the inhabitants. However, only a few days later the Muslims arrived, laying siege to the former besiegers, so the besiegers became the besieged and the besieged became the besiegers. The crusaders were afraid for their lives, but they were filled with hope when a monk named Peter discovered what he said was the holy lance which had pierced Jesus' side while he was on the cross. On the 28th of June 1098, the crusaders defeated Kaboga in a pitched battle outside the city, a victory caused by the fact that Kaboga's army was made up of different Muslim tribes and did not fight well together. While the crusaders were marching towards the Muslims, the Fatimid section of the army deserted the Turkish contingent as they feared Kaboga would become too powerful were he able to defeat the crusaders. According to a later legend, an army of Christian saints came to the aid of the crusaders during the battle and crippled Kaboga's army. Bohemond argued that Alexius had deserted the crusade as his army was nowhere to be seen and so the oath the prince had sworn was no longer in place. The crusade was delayed for the rest of the year while the nobles argued amongst themselves about whether this meant Bohemond could have the city. Plague and famine hit the crusaders while they argued and so, finally, at the beginning of 1099, the march restarted, leaving Bohemond behind as the first prince of Antioch. The emperor's worst enemy was in charge of one of his formerly most important cities. Alexius Comnenus stopped smiling. This was not going quite so well. The main crusading army reached Jerusalem in June 1099 and set up camp outside the city. By this time, only about 12,000 fighting men were left and they began to lay siege. We do not need to go into all of the details, but there was a terrible massacre of Muslims and Jews when the Crusaders finally took the Holy City. Godfrey of Bouillon was declared leader of the new Crusader Kingdom of Jerusalem. Alexius Comnenus smiled a bit more. He'd never expected to get Jerusalem back. It had been lost to the Muslims over 400 years before. The Emperor decided that having a Christian leader in the city was probably a good thing. 
In the end, the Crusades had not been what he wanted, but he had regained some of his territory in Asia Minor, and the Turks were much weaker than they had been before. Alexius must have smiled again when he heard that Bohemund of Antioch was soon captured by a new group of Turks called the Danish Mens. He was kept prisoner for three years until Baldwin, who had become king of Jerusalem, paid a ransom to rescue him. The remaining crusading leaders, who hadn't set up their own kingdoms, went home. Alexius was grateful to Raymond of Toulouse. The only leader who hadn't sworn the oath was the only one who gave back all the territory he took from the Turks to the empire. Bohemund escaped from the east and returned to Europe with hatred in his heart. The charismatic giant of a man told great stories of heroism and glory in the east and attracted many followers. Pretty soon, he had gathered a large army of loyal supporters and had married Constance, daughter of Philip I, King of France. In 1108, he marched east with 34,000 men. But Bohemund was not marching back to Antioch. He had been betrayed, or so he thought, and he was going to smash the one person who he blamed. He was going to take down Alexius Comnenus and destroy his empire. He was going to start by taking the city of Durazzo, just as his father had done 25 years before. This time, though, it was different. This time, Alexius had allies and friends in place. This time, the Normans would not find it so easy to defeat the imperial army. Durazzo had been reinforced and held firm, so Bohemund settled down to a siege. An imperial fleet with allies from Venice arrived and cut off the supplies from Italy, so the Normans began to starve. Then, exactly at the right time, Alexius turned up with the imperial army. Bohemund was forced to surrender and accept a peace treaty, in which he was made to apologise for breaking his oath. He was also forced to recognise Alexius as his overlord in Antioch. Alexius had won completely, and Bohemund had lost. The fallen prince returned to Italy, where three years later he died. His tomb, in the Italian town of Canosa, has survived to this day. On his tombstone is carved just one word, Boemundus. Alexius Comnenus had stabilised his empire. The Crusader states spent much of their time and energy fighting against the Turks and the Saracens, and so neither had much time or manpower left to fight him. At home, he gave many important jobs to members of his family. He appointed his son John, his brother-in-law Nicephorus Melissinus, and his son-in-law Nicephorus Bryennius, son of the old rebel general, to military commands. By doing this, he managed to reduce the power of the powerful, and the powerful ceased to exist. Only the Comnenae had power, and that is exactly as Alexius wanted it. This did cause some problems, though. Anna Comnena was married to Nicephorus Bryennius and wanted power for herself. Bryennius was appointed Caesar, and Anna began to dream of being empress. She couldn't stand her brother John, and did everything she could to turn her father against him. Alexius, though, loved and respected his son, and was determined to found a great dynasty. John Comnenus was named as his co-emperor and heir very early in his life. Anna was not pleased. Alexius still had much to do, though. There were three years of peace after the treaty with Bohemund had been signed in 1108. During this time, the emperor stabilised the monetary system and completed his strengthening of the army and the navy. He found time to give something back to the church and founded new monasteries. In 1111, though, the wars started again. First, the Pisans and the Genoans attacked with their fleets, but Alexius persuaded them to stop by giving them good trading rights. He stopped the attacks without having to fight. In 1113, the most feared enemy launched an attack. 54,000 Turks laid siege to Nicaea. Alexius had done his job well, and his newly strong imperial army defeated them utterly. 
The next year, the emperor defeated the Cumans and then learned the Turks were on the march against him yet again. In 1115, Alexius fell ill and wasn't well enough to lead the army against the invaders until the following year. In 1116, he set off for the heart of Anatolia, which was still controlled by the Turks. He didn't meet much resistance for a long time, but was horrified to see all of the homeless Greek people who ran out to meet him as he marched. Living under Turkish rule had made them poorer than they ever had been, and they begged the Basileus to protect them. He took back some territory and then started to march home, when his army was set upon by the Iconian Turks led by Malik Shah. At the battle that followed, the Turkish army was so completely destroyed that the Sultan had to beg for peace. More territory was returned to the empire. Anna Komnina tells us that the Sultan agreed to give everything back that had been taken since Manzikert, but she's probably not telling the truth. Alexius had not lost a battle since his early fights with the Normans. The Emperor had done amazingly well, but Anna wanted Alexius to look even better. Alexius was by now a very sick man and wanted to go home. He returned to Constantinople to find that his family was still arguing. His wife Irene and his daughter were still trying to arrange things so that Nicephorus Bryonius would be the next emperor. As Alexius lay on his deathbed, his wife le never left his side. She tended to him and helped him with his pain, but she continually tried to persuade him to make Nicephorus his heir. Alexius would have none of it but he feared she would find some way of removing John from his inheritance if she could. In the end, he had to resort to trickery to make sure he got his way. In the middle of August, it was clear to the Emperor he didn't have long left. Somehow he persuaded his wife he was feeling OK for the moment and she could leave his side for a while. Once she had left, the Emperor sent for a messenger. Very quickly, he ordered the messenger to bring John to him. The young man arrived and Alexius gave him his imperial ring and told him to rush to the Hagia Sophia and get himself crowned. This John did and after a very quick ceremony he was proclaimed Basileus. The new emperor sprinted back to the palace where he was refused entry by the Varangian guard, probably ordered by Irene. The plan worked well though. John showed the guardsmen the imperial ring and told them his father was on the brink of death. They let him through. The succession was secure. Alexius Comnenus died, aged 62, in the late evening of the 15th of August, 1118. It's clear he was one of the most brilliant men who sat on the throne of the empire since the fall of Rome. He was a brilliant statesman and governor, fortifying the cities and stabilising the currency. He was a brilliant diplomat, using his friends against his enemies and managing the First Crusade through his lands. But most of all, he was a brilliant soldier. The art and science of war fascinated him, and he was very skilful in putting his knowledge to good use. As Anna says in the Alexiad, he was never happier than when taking part in military campaigns. It's a great shame there were 13 emperors between Basil II and Alexius. If just one of those in between, the two great men, had been as good a ruler as either of them, then maybe Alexius would not have had to rebuild a sh shattered empire. As it is though, he did more than anyone thought possible, and the empire he left behind was a safer place than the one he had taken charge of 37 years earlier. Never before had the Empire needed a great emperor as much. It had seemed as if it was heading for destruction. It had seemed like there was no hope. Alexius brought a once mighty empire back from the dead and restored it to health. His son and grandson would continue his work. What none of them were to know, though, is that the Empire would never be great again once they were gone. Next time, we'll hear about the reign of Alexius's son, John the Beautiful. Until then... Have a great couple of weeks and I'll speak to you next time.